The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, Anteater Nation. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Organic Chemistry Professor V. Dong. Now, before getting yourself all tied up in knots, intimidated over this hard topic of organic chemistry that a lot of students sweat about also, relax. We're going to just learn as we go, as we follow Professor Dong's fascinating journey. Her family story actually begins in Vietnam, but let's first bring the professor to the microphone. Welcome, Professor Dong. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Fantastic. Well, a few years ago, you did a TEDx talk at UCI, and you talked about your grandmother coming to the United States. Would you mind telling us the story again? Yeah, Kevin, for sure. Yeah, there is a TEDx UCI. It was really fun to do, and it kind of gave me an opportunity to share one of my favorite stories growing up. It's about my grandmother making the split decision to come to the U.S., and she had to do it in a way without my grandpa. He was in a different city, and they were separated for 17 years, and it talks about the journey of how I ended up being a professor, and at the end, you, you learn that my grandparents actually reunite after all that time. Yeah, wow. So... Was your grandpa, was he actually living in this different city at the time or or was he just gone for the day and your grandma just made a split decision? Exactly. He was pretty much just gone for like the weekend, uh, distributing rice to the poor, kind of doing some service work. And yeah. as soon as the war ended, grandma was faced with this question, do you want to stay? Or, you know, her cousin said, we're getting on a boat and we're just going to leave the homeland. And yeah. he actually had... Um, two of my cousins were spending the night and this part of the story breaks my heart. I don't talk about this, but my cousin was really little and she was supposed to go home with her parents, but she was like, no, I want to spend the night at grandma's house. And because of that, she ended up being separated from her parents for like 30 years. And I think she always felt some guilt with, you know, making that decision. We, we make those kind of decisions all the time. Right. And in that one was just like, it had such a huge impact on where her life ended up going. And, I just, you know, I always think about this story because whenever I have like a big decision to make, it, it just kind of grounds me to, to remind me that, you know, maybe our decisions, you know, they're big, but they're not sort of like that type of magnitude. 
Right. Had your grandma, is she still here or has she? Yeah, yeah, exactly. She is. In fact, she just celebrated her 92nd birthday um, (laughs) a few days ago. Yeah, I had a a chance to call her and say happy birthday. Uh, That's great. You know, had she been kind of thinking about the possibility or was it literally on the fly? Yeah, you know what? It's a really great question. I wondered that as well. You know, how can you make such a drastic decision on the fly like that? And it was really on the fly because, you know, as soon as they knew the war ended, they had to make that decision and they had to make it really quickly. And so one of the things that helped me learn more about it was just from talking to other people who made similar decisions. My grandparents had made a decision similar back in 1954. So at that time, the communists, they gave people an option. Like if you wanted to move to South Vietnam, you could. Mm. And so my parents are actually originally from North Vietnam, and they made that move in 1954. In some ways, making that move and being positive about your choice there, it was Mm. like similar kind of choice. Like, do you stay and live under communist rule or do you take your chances and and move somewhere new? And so it was in in a way like a similar decision, but I guess like a, a much bigger magnitude. Gotcha. Now, you're not actually born yet, right? That's right. I was born in Texas. Right. So I I was born like just shortly after my parents and my parents actually, they were disconnected too. And they ended up meeting at a refugee camp in Guam. They reunited there. Yeah. My dad says that he was in line to get some food and he saw this little girl who was like way too tan because she had been out on the boat. It was my mom's sister. So he barely recognized her. They, they ended up getting reunited at this refugee camp and getting oh. married there and then moving to the U.S. together. Okay. And I understand that you grew up in Big Spring, West Texas. Is that right? Yeah. Well, sort of. Yeah, I lived there until I was about six years old. And so okay. when I moved to California, I did have a Texan twang still. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think it faded. I think it has. I don't notice it at all. Actually. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, I remember the kids used to ask me to say certain words like red or bed. We called pants britches. So there were things like that. But it slowly like got replaced by, I think, a California accent with a lot of dudes and <laughs> life gotcha. in there. Well, hey, were you always interested in chemistry? When does that enter the picture? Yeah, that's a really cool question. So I would say no, I wasn't always interested in chemistry. In fact, in high school, I really struggled with understanding uh, what a mole was. You know, this idea that there's a certain number of atoms, it was 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd. I just really, I remember just asking my high school chemistry teacher over and over to explain that concept. And it wasn't until I took sophomore organic chemistry here at UC Irvine that I realized that I wanted to be a chemist and I ended up switching my major. Mm. What were you majoring before that? So I was a majoring in ecology. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And so I remember opening up the UCI catalog and I think uh, like most students, you know, you're wondering what kind of job options you have. And it said I could work for the department of fish and game. That didn't sound so exciting at the time. And so uh, I started looking for different majors. Gotcha. What high school did you go to? So I went to Magnolia High School in Anaheim. Oh, okay. You graduate from UCI magna cum laude in 1998, and you completed an honors thesis with UCI professor Larry Overman. Your honors thesis was on tethered Biganelli condensation. I'm like, uh oh, that's (laughs) big words that I don't understand. Can you briefly tell us? 
Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Kevin. You've really done your research. I'm impressed. Um, <laughs> so yeah, tethered Bisonelli condensation. Chemists have this tendency to name new reactions that are discovered after the chemist, right? So Bisonelli was a chemist and he discovered this reaction. And so my undergraduate project was to develop a version of the reaction where I tethered the two pieces together. And so if that happens then you end up making rings. And so it's not a super creative extension of the Bisonelli chemistry, but uh, I was able to use it to make some like five and six membered ring structures. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so that's the named reactions are kind of common in organic chemistry. Gotcha. Do we see anything where that's used in our everyday life? Yeah, I think uh, you mean like the direct work that I was doing with Larry Oberman at the time? Yeah, well, like, is there yeah. anything that I can relate to that that does? Sure, for sure. So one of the things kind of interesting about medicine and biology, have you ever tried to just look up a, a drug that you've been prescribed by a doctor just to see what it looks like? Yeah. You, know, you see all these. Oh, lines. oh yeah. The, uh, the picture yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love doing that. And so. Yeah. Usually when you open one of these, you know, Google searches, you'll see like structures that have all these rings in it. And so it turns out that rings are so common in medicines and in biology, like five-membered rings, six-membered rings, sugars are six-membered rings, oh. uh, DNA bases are five-membered rings. And so oftentimes chemists will try to develop, you know, better ways to make rings because they are important kind of architectures in oh. medicine and biology. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, you know, on a lighter note, you complimented me on my research. So I do know that you worked at Disneyland during your undergrad <laughs> years. So please, what the heck? What'd you do at Disneyland? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about Disneyland, right? The happiest <laughs> place on earth. You know what? Working at Disneyland was kind of an amazing job for someone in high school. And I worked in my first year of college yeah. because I would say like compared to most retail, the guests there, we called them guests. We, we had three days of uh, training, right? Call yeah. it kind of brainwashing where we learn all the different terminologies. Basically, I wasn't really selling lemonade or churros or cleaning out things. I was actually playing the part of an actor on the stage, yeah. pretending to sell churros in a very happy way, right? Uh, it was a fun experience. And the, the people there are generally really happy. And so right. if you give them the wrong change or if you mess up their order, everyone was really cool about it, I would say. Yeah. So did you work in every part of the park or was there a certain area? Yeah, I did. I, I would come in and then I would be assigned to Toontown and they would give me costume and I would just put that on and then go straight to Toontown and sell like Coke and popcorn. Yeah. And then some days it would be Main Street. My favorite was actually, they used to have an electric parade. I don't know if they do that anymore. I think they okay. do. They, yeah, they it kind of goes away and comes back, goes away and comes yeah, back. I think. Yeah, it was, it was an awesome gig. You would come in and then you would get to have as much glow sticks as you want and we would decorate ourselves with all these glow sticks and we would walk the route of the parade and just you know children would run up and say how much and you'd say two dollars and they'd run back to their parents and get money and just like selling glow sticks all along the electric route was right uh, right 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 so it was right. Kind of a fun job do you have a favorite funny story? You know, favorite funny story. I have a lot of embarrassing things that happened to me at Disneyland. Um, well, we got to hear it. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, one time I was trying to, to push out my popcorn cart and I got stuck on a railroad and like the Disneyland like train started coming towards me. Oh, my God wild like you know yeah my car's gonna get run over by a train but yeah. I was able to dislodge myself and there was another time I did get stuck in a parade route and like somebody had to come rescue me because I I just somehow <laughs> got cornered by these floats and I wasn't able to 
make my way out. But I would say, you know, I, I learned a lot working at Disneyland. I think the, the most interesting sort of life lesson was whenever I got a break, like a relief would come in and they were like professional, you know, they were really good at their job. So they'd give me a break. And when I came back, like my wagon would be in top shape. All the money would be lined up in perfect order, like yeah. the thing be restocked. And it was just like amazing. And I think just learning, like no matter what kind of job you do, right? Like as you get good at it, it's like art. You see someone doing it and it's like, yeah. oh, this person's just like magical in the way that they can handle this like, this job and um, I remember thinking that same thing when I started being a a chemist like the graduate student that I was mentoring just the way he poured things Uh answered stuff in a vial like I was so clumsy at it and he just made it look effortless yeah very good you seem like a natural with organic chemistry what is it that you like about it yeah you know when I took organic chemistry that's when I first realized it was so different from any other branch of science because there is a huge element of art involved mm. um, you had to draw structures in three dimensions and you could come up with new like structures like just the same way we you know build uh, things with Legos and then start thinking about wait how would I actually assemble this tiny tiny structure that no one can see with the naked eye right but using very very simple rules the rules are almost the same as lego building blocks right this clicks into this there's only you know like four things that can click into carbon and so once you learn these very very simple rules you can start to make things that don't exist and things that have function that you want and so yeah i'm pretty excited about a, a new collaboration we have here at uc irvine and i can tell you a bit more about that if you're interested. yeah yeah please well, why don't we take the opportunity right now Yeah, for sure, Kevin. I'm learning a lot about this area, but um, a really good friend and collaborator, uh, Professor Xiaoyu Shi, she's in cell and developmental biologist. So her expertise is in microscopy. So Xiaoyu can take a microscope apart and put it back together in like less than 10 minutes. You know, I would have no idea how to do that. (laughs) So one of the questions we're really interested in answering is like in a single brain cell, right? What are all the proteins in a single neuron? And nobody knows the answer to this question. And so this is kind of fun, right, Kevin? Like, how would you, how would we even tackle something like figuring out all the proteins in a single brain cell? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it turns out we've got to use a mixture of, you know, microscopes, organic chemistry, um, you know, molecules that can tag proteins. We got to use lasers to carve things out. Yeah, I was going to say light. I, I knew <laughs> I knew light was going to be in there someplace. Yeah, light is a huge part. Yeah, so it's pretty fun. We're just learning all kinds of things. Just to answer this very, very kind of simple question in some yeah. ways. Like, what are, what are the proteins that make up your brain cell? Um, you know, I think you could a- answer cool things. Like when people laugh a lot, like what, what happens to certain expressions of proteins or, you know, which ones are involved and things like that. So... Um, I've always been pretty fascinated by how the brain works. And so we're, we're excited about this. Oh, super. Excuse me for a moment, Professor, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my special guest today is UCI Organic Chemistry Professor V. Dong. She originally received her undergrad degree at UCI, and then she had some great experiences at other superb universities before returning back to UCI in 2012. Professor, once you got your undergrad degree, did you know you go to grad school or how did that all come about? Yeah, so I wasn't uh, 100% sure, but I thought I should give grad school a try. There were lots of frustrating things. Uh, I ended up working for a brand new professor that 
was just starting up his research lab named Dave McMillan. Yeah. And so you you know Dave, uh, Kevin, I, you, you just recently gave a really uh, awesome interview with him. Yeah, yeah, and just as a side note, he's the 2021 shared Nobel Prize winner for chemistry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it was a pretty awesome opportunity to be part of this brand new lab. And Dave was just so enthusiastic about what he was doing, his new ideas. And so we were all on board. We were like 110% committed to working with him. And you know, I, you know yeah. Professor, I know that you were also offered to go to grad school at Harvard, right? So it was this newly enthusiastic guy versus Harvard. I mean, that seems like it would be a really hard decision, was it? I mean, I know yeah, your mom yeah. wanted you to go to Harvard, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's true. My parents did want me to go to Harvard. And I remember my dad making this very logical argument, you know, why don't you go work for the Dave that Dave McMillan worked for? That you know, is, that you mean at Harvard? Yeah, there was. That is such a logical argument. (laughs) That would be tough, right? (laughs) You know, it's it's true. That was such a logical argument, right? I'm like, hey, this this new professor, he seems really cool, has good ideas. And he was like, well, why don't you just work for the guy who trained him, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right, right. Oh my God. So what was it? Was it just intuitive for you? No, I got to go this way. Yeah, that's a really good question, Kevin. I you know, it's, it's kind of funny with me. I feel like oftentimes when, especially authority figures like my parents or someone right. to do something, right. and even though it's logical, there's a part of me that's like, no, maybe I can prove you wrong and yeah. be like yeah. working for someone like Dave can actually pan out. So yeah, <laughs> I think that's part of it. You know, like there's always an element of like maybe doing something a little different from what your parents want you to do. Well, that's awesome. And he was at UC Berkeley, right? So it wasn't like, you exactly. were going totally crazy. So <laughs> yeah. that's fantastic. So was Dave working on his Nobel work at that time or not yet? Yeah. You know, what's really crazy, Kevin, I think it's rare, but he was starting to work on his Nobel prize work right then. And I started the group working on an idea that was not the Nobel prize one. And so I've kind of joked that maybe I should have switched projects at some point. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we were committed to working on some of Dave's original ideas. But like shortly after he got there, he came up with this new idea. And um, Terry Arndt and Chris Bortz, two of my lab mates, started working on it. And they made it happen. And that very first paper was published just a year from when our lab started. Yeah. And that's what the Nobel Committee has cited as being sort of the prize-winning discovery. So it's, it's pretty cool to just be, a, you know, brought a, back a, a flood of memories when I heard about Dave's award. Can you just, in a nutshell, it was organocatalysis. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, kind of in a nutshell, in the world of catalysis, there is enzymes, right? These huge biological molecules made out of amino acids. And then there's also the world of like smaller molecules that we will use like transition metals and that Lewis acids and things. And so what Dave and Ben Liss kind of really helped bring people's attention to was that space in between where you could use things like amino acids or small organic molecules and still achieve like these amazing transformations and build bonds um, in very selective and efficient ways. And so Dave actually coined the term organocatalysis. And I remember one of my lab mates, Tesha Yoon, who's a brilliant guy at the 
University of Wisconsin. He's a professor there. But Teshik was editing Dave's, you know, initial draft of the paper and kind of providing feedback. Yeah. And every time the word organocatalysis appeared, Teshik would mark it out with a red pen. And <laughs> he wrote, like, this is not a word. <laughs> and so, uh, I think they, they, they both laugh about it now because basically, you know, by coining that word, they've kind of brought the field together. And uh. there's been so much development in sort of small molecule organic based uh, catalysts. Very cool. Just on, a, on another note, I like your inspiring TEDx talk when you say beyond our gender, beyond our race, beyond where we were born, we are all organic beings made up of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. Is that true? All human beings have the exact same amount of those elements? Yeah. A plus, Kevin. Great job on that. I think you just ate. Yeah. Thanks, Professor. You know, know, I will ask you a question. Are elements also atoms? Is it when you say elements, are you saying atoms? Yeah, we are. Like the periodic table of elements. Those are the atoms. Those are the basic building blocks. And what's wild is you got over 118 right on the periodic table. But like we're all made out of like mostly those four carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. To be honest, a few years ago, the first time I interviewed anybody in chemistry was Era Abkarian. I was only supposed to talk to him for 15 minutes and like an hour plus into it. And he's <laughs> saying, I was just like, oh, my God, you know, the professor is still talking to me. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. And he goes, Kevin, this table, you know, in chemistry, like in the universe, it's all the same stuff like this table, you know, the air the door, the glass. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know why when I was a kid, you know, it didn't really grab me. And I'm like, this yeah. is incredible. Awesome. Yeah. You know, just back to, you know, talking about these, you know, four elements, you also, by saying that you're interested in, in, in inclusion, equity, and diversity. Why is that important to you? I could, cause I can tell it, it calls to you. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, one of the things that, you know, I've become more aware of is how how easy it is to get sort of really a tunnel vision and kind of stick with your field, right? Because it's so complicated just trying to master the chemistry mm-hmm. things. And then at the same time, I think in light of everything that's been happening around us, important to recognize that there's all these other concepts that are very, very complex, right? There's a history there's phenomenon that we like I don't understand as a chemistry professor and so yeah me and my students have made a conscious effort to try to learn more about implicit bias uh, anti-racism about you know racism historically and systematically and about how we can be better educators and and communicators and be more inclusive and welcoming and like help create a more equitable world for, for chemistry and everything. So yeah, it's 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 still a learning process for us, but that's something I think is important to do, especially um, being a professor here at UC Irvine, mm-hmm. such a diverse student body. Very very good. Well, just following your um, trajectory, you go from UC Berkeley to Caltech. Because did Dave's lab, Dave McMillan's lab, move to Caltech? Is that the way it worked? Yeah, that's right. So I think Caltech saw something in Dave's research early on. They probably did recognize the, the implications of this mm. organocatalysis concept. And so they made him a, a really great offer to mm. move. And so, yeah, we moved with him. Was that a no-brainer or was that a big decision for you too? 
You know, for me, it was almost a no-brainer because being from Southern California, I was kind of cold up at Berkeley. Uh, and, um, I think it was just family and friends. And my now husband was also living down in Irvine at the time. And so I think for me, it was like, oh, well, this is a great move. Cool. Well, since you mentioned your husband, how did you guys meet? Uh, we met in Larry Overman's organic chemistry class. Oh, (laughs) well, there you go. I mean, that Nobel Prize, and he introduced you guys or. or, Yeah, yeah. he connected me to McMillan and also to Wilmer. So Larry does like joke that he likes to take credit for that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Did you feel like the culture at UC Berkeley versus Caltech, did you feel like it was a lot different or very similar? What, What was that like? Yeah, you know, there's a certain California attitude, I think that pervades in all the top departments here. That's one thing that drew me to uh, staying on the the West Coast and kind of pursuing my education here. So I think there's definitely like an openness, a collaborative nature, Uh, people are really excited about what they're doing. Uh, Berkeley is just such a huge campus. And really kind of like an amazing city with the, the Bay Area and San Francisco. Um, and I think Caltech's just so different, right? It's a very small suburban kind of campus. There's not a lot going on uh, amongst the undergraduate students. I think we, we didn't really have as much interaction um, mm. and stuff. So yeah, it was just like very, very different like environment for sure. Mm. Interesting. Okay. So in 2003, October, 2003, you receive your PhD. That's very awesome. Did, what, what did that feel like? Did you you know, was that like, oh, mission accomplished? You know, the the feeling I remember, Kevin, is, wow, uh, <laughs> that was a pretty challenging. And it almost made me feel like I, I felt like I could tackle almost anything, right? I, I sort of, I think when I was a student, I remember being sort of afraid, like, oh, maybe med school is too hard or law school would be challenging. But uh, after doing the PhD, I remember thinking, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I can kind of have that openness to learn whatever it is I need to learn. And like, I, I can do it. There's yeah. no, that has to teach me. Um, and there's no program that I need to sign up for in a way. Like this is sort of, once you get your PhD, it's like, you're basically on your own. <laughs> That's mm. the highest mm. degree. And so like, I think um, like, if I want to learn about a different topic, I had that confidence that I could go off and do that. Yeah, That's awesome. What about, you know, what was next? I mean, did, did you know right away, oh, I know what's next, or, or w- was there any uncertainty with that? Yeah, I knew what was next was to go and learn more things. And so yeah. kind of like along those lines, Kevin, I should, you know, uh, the one thing about the PhD is I think that idea that I learned how much I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, there's just like, there's just so little, you become an expert on something so small. Mm-hmm. That barely anyone in the world cares about except you, right? It's, it's even hard to find like one other person that cares as much as you do. Mm-hmm. And so um, the next thing for me was to learn about organometallic chemistry with Bob Berkman, who's a professor at UC Berkeley. You know, one of the things that drove me was this challenge that still exists today. We're not able to take methane and turn it into methanol. Mm. And so you know, if chemists could solve that problem, all of this methane that right now is just being put to waste, it's just a, a gas that's just sort of extruded by the petroleum industry and doesn't really have any real use. If we could turn that into methanol, you could imagine kind of closing mm. the carbon cycle. 
Yeah. And so I was really intrigued by this idea uh, because especially after making really complex organic structures, uh, you know, just that realization that, wait, you can't just take methane and just add, you know, one little oxygen atom and turn it into a fuel that's sustainable and renewable. Yeah. And so uh, I decided to go to UC Berkeley to learn more about that problem. Yeah. So that was a while ago, right? Has anything been discovered in that area? Yeah, it's a great question. There's been a lot of progress. Um, and, you know, people can take methane into other activated forms um, like sulfonic acids and things like that, but it's still not yet, there's not a practical solution to this problem yet. And so it's something my lab's also very, very interested in tackling. And we're trying to come up with different approaches, especially in, in using like enzyme catalysis to do this. Yeah. But yeah, I think there's a lot of problems that, chemists can potentially help solve. And that, that's one of the things that really draws me to organic chemistry, right? These kind of challenges that at, at least on, on the surface, they seem so simple, but knowing that you really need new chemistry to solve them yeah. is exciting. You know, Dave McMillan's you know, discovery with organocatalysis, do you feel it's incredible discovery but yeah, it's, it's a needle in a haystack. Or do you feel like, I understand that that was a fairly simple concept to kind of work through, but yet, you know, it was just amazing discovery. Do you feel like that that's possible in a lot of other areas? It's, that's what all chemists are, are searching for is that simple way to make it. Does that make any yeah. sense? I, I understand what you're saying, Kevin. And it's a really interesting question, right? This idea of like, where does that, sort of spark where that idea come from because it comes from like an individual and it's almost like a, a product of their creativity right uh -huh. you know it's one of these aha moments like the one you had with ara when you were in talking mm -hmm. about how everything was made out of the same element right right so, right it's a really great question so i think about this a lot especially as an educator and as a researcher and one of the things that cognitive scientists have shown is this idea that your brain has two modes, the focused mode and then the diffuse mode. And so I don't, are you familiar with these two brain modes? Not totally. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Have you ever like, you know, maybe sat down to do a, a problem, like worked on a wordle or something, couldn't get it. And then just, you know, went to take a walk or woke up in the morning and just oh, yeah. came to you. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's awesome. So this is this idea that, you know, your brain has this mode called diffuse mode. And as you go through life, you know, developing these different knowledge and these neural pathways for problem solving, there's some problems that are just way bigger than any of us know the answer to. And it's actually when you don't focus on the problems, you're doing something completely different, that your brain sort of like makes uh, random connections between two, uh, mm. two neurons, and then you get like this new idea. Mm. So I'm kind of, uh, I think this is really cool. I think it's really important for students to also know about, you know, if you're studying for an exam or something, it's not a bad idea to try to tackle some of the hardest problems first, mm -hmm. then go and do the simple ones because your brain will, in the background, be working on a solution that mm -hmm. requires like diffuse mode thinking. Mm -hmm. but, um, mm -hmm. I think what you're describing here for Dave is it was probably some type of diffuse mode, right? He knew about enzymes, he knew about transition metals, he knew how challenging it was to work in the glove box with metals and that was no fun, right? And so he thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could just 
use these catalysts outside on the bench. They weren't sensitive to air and oxygen, moisture and things like that. And then, mm. yeah, then he had the aha moment. Oh, oh, very cool. Uh, excuse me one more time, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. And my guest today is UCI Chemistry Professor V. Dong. And we're following the progression of her career. She reaches back to UC Berkeley doing her postdoc work. And when you're doing postdoc work, Professor, is your ear to the wall for a professor position or? No, it's different than that. Yeah, for sure. Um, you're always kind of trying to keep an eye open, attending conferences, making connections and learning about the different opportunities because professorships are sometimes it's just a, a matter of luck and timing, right? Mm. That there'd be an opening in the particular area of your specialty. Mm. Gotcha. So you find a position, at, is it the University of Toronto? Yeah, so I ended up moving to Canada. I lived there for six winters. <laughs> How'd you like it? You know, I liked my time there a lot. I think I learned a lot about what it meant to be a Canadian and then also more about what it meant to be an American. I think Americans, we tend to think of Canada as like not so different from the U.S., but when you live in a different country, I think it is like it's a really cool learning experience. Very good. And you become tenured up there. How does it work out that you come back to UCI? So Larry uh, called me up. One of my professors here, Keith Warpel, had an opportunity to move to New York at NYU. And so there was an opening for a professorship at Irvine. And I think Larry thought of me as a possible good fit. And so he called me up and asked me to come check it out and apply. And I went through the process. And yeah, I ended up getting an offer to come back here. Oh, wow. Great. And, and was that pretty easy decision for you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It was actually an extremely difficult decision. And I think that was surprising to me as well. (laughs) Because, you know, we were doing so well in Toronto. And I really felt a a strong relationship with my students there. This decision wouldn't only impact me because it would be this cross country, right, move and Mm. to a different country for my Canadian students. Mm. And so, yeah, it was a very difficult decision because I Mm. I think there were so many people that would be impacted. And so it took a long time uh, before we finally made that decision, but I'm happy I did. Gotcha. Did you have a lab up there too? I did have a lab up there. Yeah, we had a lab with a similar size, like about 10 to 12 Uh students working. Is that a large chemistry lab? Is that an average chemistry lab, small? What? Yeah, I would call it, I think it's average. The largest groups nowadays, um, you know, like Dave McMillan would be an example. He probably has like over 40 people in the wow. lab. And then I think on the small end, you know, you can have groups with like maybe five students or so. So our group is kind of a medium size, like 12 students plus some undergraduates. Gotcha. And are you fully responsible? So, I mean, you're watching the budget. Is that a big component of your responsibility? Yeah, it's a good question. I didn't realize, but yeah, the job has a lot of different moving parts, like budget, fundraising, training the students. It's almost like running a small business. Yeah. And how are you funded now? Is it basically government funding or did you have industry too? Yeah, we have a mix. Um, We've been fortunate to have some support in the past from industry uh, like Merck Pharmaceuticals. The other big component is the taxpayer's money. And so uh, the Natural Institute of Health, uh, right now we have a grant that funds me as an investigator. 
which is a new program because um, so it basically is saying, hey, Kevin, we're going to fund you. Go ahead and go do something interesting and creative. We believe that you will in the oh. next years. Um, the, the other type of grants, uh, Kevin, are like project grants. So I would say like, you know, I'm going to go study the tethered Bigenelli condensation, right? And mm. so the NIH might give me money and I have to really focus on that. And so this is a new mode of funding and it gives us like a lot of flexibility to change research directions and work on whatever we want to. Wow, fantastic to have that freedom. So in May, 2015, you do that TEDx talk at UC Irvine. How does that come about? Um, yeah, I think it was Jose. He was a student director of the program and I don't really know how they choose the TEDx speakers. I think just kind of chatting with people in the community, mm -hmm. um, they'll reach out to various people, but it was a, a fun experience. I got to meet actually someone who's the mom of one of my sons, Sarah Pressman. She does sort of research on happiness and things like that. So I think, yeah, they've drawn from all kinds of different people in the community. This is practically useful, Kevin. Have you ever like went to get a shot? I think we're all getting shots right now, right? Because of COVID. Right. But if you smile, even if you fake a smile during the shot, it will hurt way less. Uh-huh. Okay. So, yeah, so I remember I learning this at Sarah's talk. And I always, yeah, I always pretend to smile whenever I'm getting my shots. Very cool. Very cool. Or like anything that you're really not in, enjoying doing. <laughs> if you smile, it, it, you know, it releases something in you. And I, I think that's that's good. Uh, good to hear. Good advice. That's right. That's right. For sure. Yeah. I had a student who I kind of said, like, he was smiling through his entire PhD. And I think he just made uh, even the, the challenging parts way more enjoyable. Very good. I see on your CV that you have several patents can you briefly tell us what those are? Sure. It was almost by accident, but one of my students, Stephen Murphy, he came into the lab one day and basically told me that the exact thing that he was doing, he ended up doing the reverse of it. So he was trying to do uh, what's called a hydroformylation. And this is uh, used a lot in industry, huge scale to make aldehydes. Um, Stephen ended up reversing it. So he took an aldehyde and went back to an olefin, an alkene. And so we've patented this process. And um, interestingly, it's also like something that happens in the biosynthesis of cholesterol. So it's happening in us right now as we sit here chatting. Mm. Um, but Stephen kind of made that discovery uh, by accident. Wow. Actually trying to do something totally different. Oh, wow. Do you anticipate having more patents in the future? Or is that, you know, you, you just never know? Or is that something you're actively working on? We don't really actively work on it. And I think if the opportunity arises, we kind of have that discussion, whether or not it's something we should patent or it's better to just kind of have freely in the literature. So most of our discoveries are just out there in the literature. We kind of look for you know, people who want to use it. Um, this particular discovery, CP Chemicals, uh, was very interested in it. So they supported the patent because they wanted to kind of develop it further. And it's hard for companies to do that sometimes if they can't have that opportunity to license the technology. Mm. Do you work with pharmaceutical companies a lot? Yeah. So, um, you know, Kevin, that's one of the primary jobs that students in my lab will pursue afterwards. And so they'll spend their time, like Ryan, for example, just graduated and he landed his dream job in San Diego and he will be a medicinal chemist, like inventing new drugs. And so we do have a, a close relationship with colleagues in the pharmaceutical industry. We try to develop chemistry that might be of interest and use 
to them. And they also are really great about sort of helping us like, you know, get feedback and the kinds of training that's needed to help students prepare for those kind of careers in pharma. Here's a tough question. Of all the things you've done in your life, what do you think is the most significant? Oh, yeah, that's a really hard question. (laughs) But I can tell you what I think is super significant and very, very difficult was actually having my son in 2016. Yes. I don't know how women do this, uh, but to me, it's like <laughs> you found out. <laughs> yeah, I literally thought I was like, "How do I keep this little person? I have to constantly feed, change right. their diaper, right. and it's this endless cycle." And I just remember thinking, "This, this is like an impossible task." <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And so, yeah, a lot of respect to all the the women and the mothers and fathers out there. I, I don't know. Like, I feel like nobody ever told me how difficult that actually right. was. <laughs> right, 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 right. And if they told you, yeah, I think trying to tell a person that doesn't have kids about what it is, they just don't get it. I mean, they don't. I, they don't. They're all like really bright eyed and sort of like uh, just very optimistic, right? So you must have kids, Kevin. You know. Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that was um, you know, that was yeah, and it's it's been super fun. My son is five now, and he, uh, you know, he will come with me on the first day of class sometimes and yeah. give lecture so he started doing that when he was two his uh, favorite like number was eight and so i'd ask him how many electrons in a valence uh, and so um yeah it inspired the students to be like chemistry must be accessible if this three-year-old knows it that's fantastic <laughs> wow is teaching what you expected it to be um you know what kevin okay so i love teaching and i'll say I'm still you know if you can edit that PhD question, I think the, the more true answer was this idea that there's so much I don't know after the PhD. It's the same with teaching. You know, you think, okay, well, I've taught this subject for 15 years now, just like same old, same old. Yeah. You know, what's fascinating to me, Kevin, is this idea that whatever we talk about today, a week from now, you and I will both forget all of it, uh-huh. right? You know, uh-huh. it's recorded, yeah. but it's like, that will just completely vanish. Now imagine how depressing that can be as a teacher. Like you're teaching your students, putting all this effort in. And I know after I give my lecture in a week, they will forget everything I told them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what? Yeah. But you this sound a, very, you sound very optimistic about that. Like, so I'll wait for yeah. the optimistic part now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, so I they've forgotten the everything. So right. what, what, what's, the, yeah. yeah, what's the takeaway? Yeah, that's really, uh, yeah, so the takeaway, I've been doing a lot of reading recently. I took a, over the pandemic, this online course by Barbara Oakley, highly recommend it. It's called Learning How to Learn. And I've been reading various books about this, but, you know, one of the simplest things, you know, uh, for us to do, you know, in a conversation where you're like, you know what, that was a cool insight. And I want that. All you have to do is like spend like uh, 30 seconds trying to retrieve it. Right. Kind of be like, wait, what did I talk about with Kevin? That was kind of really cool. I want to remember. And so there's these various tricks you can do to your brain to basically tell it, you know what? Don't forget that I actually need it. I want to keep it. Otherwise, yeah, within a week, uh, everything you learn kind of disappears. And so now when I teach classes, um, I take a slightly different approach, right? We, we introduce a topic and then a week from there, we review the topic. And then the week after the students will write an assignment on the topic. And so the goal is kind of this like, you know, just constant reminder of something you might've learned before you forget it all. Yeah. 
Yeah, that very, very cool insight. What do you look for in a lab member? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, you know, there there's a, a wide range. And recently, one thing I've told my students is like, you guys are all just kind of perfect the way you are. Don't worry about it. Um, because we're all on a journey. And so it sounds kind of strange, but I, I think of it as, you know, every student's kind of on a path. And my job is to make sure they've got the resources to just continue growing on their path. So just for me, what I look for is, you know, just students who want to come in have a really sort of open mind and want to work together and grow and make mistakes together. And none of us know all the answers. Maybe back to your question about like, after the PhD, I just realized how little I know. Um, Mm. It's still a path. It's still a journey for me trying to figure out like, what's the best way to like make discoveries and mentor and run a lab. And so yeah, students who are willing to kind of go on the adventure together, experiment together, and just kind of believe we'll, we'll get somewhere good. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. My guest today is UCI Organic Chemistry Professor V. Dong. Now back to the interview. You have an amazing CV. It's 18 pages long. It seems, <laughs> seems like you you have traveled to a lot of places for conferences. Of all the places you've gone to, do you have a most memorable conference or a most memorable location? Oh, that's such a good question, Kevin. Yeah, I've traveled a lot. I don't know if I'll ever go back to to that level of travel, but you know, every place has been pretty amazing and unique in its own right. Let me think. Uh, so there was a place that it was in France, and I got a chance to meet this chemist named Marta Catalani. So you know how we talked about like named reactions. There's actually very few women who have reactions named after them. Uh, for various reasons, right? Um, uh, but Martha, uh, she actually has a reaction called the Catalani reaction that a lot of people are using these days in new and creative ways. And so I met her in a laundromat. My husband ran into her and then he brought her over and we, you know, we got to chat and then we had dinner and she's just this amazing person who invented a reaction. Uh, she was raised by nuns. Uh, she you know, has a killer Terry Misu recipe that she shared with me. And so, uh, you know, I think things like that, that's one thing you really can't get out of a Zoom meeting, right? That kind yeah. of interaction. So yeah, that was super memorable. And I really appreciate it. We've kept in touch uh, through the years and we saw each other again at a different meeting. Yeah, that was pretty memorable. Of all your publications, which you have many, 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 who have you published with the most? Is there one person that you've been a joint author on or does it work like that yeah you know we do have colleagues that we collaborate with but Uh I had a student her name was uh, Xiaowei Yang and when she got to my group she she said something like oh I just want to publish like maybe one paper and I remember saying yeah but you you're going to apply for this fellowship maybe just aim a little bit higher and Xiaowei ended up being the most prolific uh, student she ended up publishing I think over like five papers in my lab and she has like two more in the works Uh, so she's now a professor with her own research lab at the Beijing Institute of Technology and she was one of the very few women in China that won this really huge award called the 1000 Scholar Award and so she's got like a well-funded group and doing cool creative stuff out there so you know um, I've just had stories like that where students come in and I think when they sort of realized that they could set this kind of big goal, it's a bit eye-opening, like, oh, I, I'm not limited to that. So it's achievable. And 
yeah, we've had Xiao Wei, uh, Kevin Ko, who's now a professor at UC Riverside, a lot of these kind of superstar students who've published a lot with me. How about adversity, Professor? I always like to ask my guests. I think a lot of students look at professors and they think, oh, they're so smart. It was easy for them. They're just a natural. Can you share of, of an adverse point in your life that you just had to, whether it was grind through or, or you know, what you did to overcome it? Yeah, that's a really good question, Kevin. I think one thing I would, you know, share about adversity and things like that is it never, ever goes away. <laughs> I think when we're young, we sort of think, oh, maybe one day when I'm done with college, every, you know, or when uh-huh. I'm married or when I have kids or when, when you PhD, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it's amazing the adversity. It's like there in your face every single day. And I, maybe you feel the same, right? It's just sort of like never ending. Yeah. Um, obstacles that kind of get in our way and I think like that's one thing I would say is um, sort of just enjoy the process it's actually present the here and now that really matters right it's the people that we're with right now and we're all sort of on this journey together Uh, there's no destination really like I think about like I don't really want my son to grow up that fast you know like it's it's challenging right now or even with my research students like there's so much they need to learn when they first start their graduate work but sort of like let's just enjoy the process we're in because there's really why are we in such a rush to get somewhere else you seem like you have a really good grasp of that professor is do you feel like yeah that was something I learned at a you seem like you have a strong grasp of that. How did, how did you get such a strong grasp of that? <laughs> so I, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a really good question, Kevin. You know, one of the things, and maybe this is part of the adversity that, like, my way of coping with adversity. My way of coping with adversity is, like, you know, whatever problem I have, whether it's like, how, what's the best way to hit a tennis ball or uh, how to be a better communicator or like how to write. Um, I just like, I, I search for books from experts and I just kind of read as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's sort of my strategy is uh, I, you know, <laughs> sometimes I, I feel like there's really lessons that are hard for me to learn in other ways, but reading um, has always been like, for me, like a really, it's the most kind of easy way for me to absorb some of these concepts so yeah I've read uh read a lot of books um on on these topics including things by the Dalai Lama or Mm -hmm. like people who you know Marie Kondo things like that they're books that I think have you know in the end it's weird they they have these kind of common themes in them Mm -hmm. yeah very good I see that you're an associate editor professor can you tell me about that Yeah, for sure, Kevin. So um, a part of the scientific world is the peer review process, right? Because at the end of the day, who's going to be the judge of your science? And it's really your peers. And so as an associate editor for chemical science, my job really is to just match up manuscripts that are sent with the appropriate experts who can kind of give real Mm. critical feedback and Mm. make sure the science is sound and also provide suggestions that make you know, the paper even better. So I sort of play the role of a matchmaker <laughs> where you're, you know, you're looking uh, to get some feedback outside your immediate circle, right? And it's it's anonymous. And so you, if you sent me a paper, Kevin, you would get back three reviews. And, mm. you know, usually what ends up happening is one reviewer loves it. One reviewer 
you know, is lukewarm and the other one hates it. And so, mm. um, <laughs> so my job as an editor is kind of sort through those reviews and take them into account and then make decisions on what to do with your paper. Gotcha. How about awards? I note that you've received a lot of awards. Do you have one that you're most proud of? Yeah, you know what, Kevin? It's an interesting question. When I was a kid, I really liked awards. I remember I won a handwriting competition and like that was such a big deal. But (laughs) I guess in recent years, the, the award that has been, it's been very meaningful for us. So when I was an undergrad, I had this fellowship to work in the summer. It was a chance I didn't have to work at Disneyland. I could actually work in Larry Overman's lab. And it was a chance to meet a Nobel laureate named E.J. Corey. And so at the time, I had no idea who he was. He signed a book for me and said, you know, best wishes on your study of, you know, chemical synthesis. And so years later, I ended up winning the um, American Chemical Society E.J. Corey Award for like an outstanding contribution to the field. And I was the first woman to win this award. And so I think, you know, that was really important. And it was a chance for me to give an award symposium. Dave McMillan came out to give a lecture and I flew all of my students uh, out to Orlando. And we just had this amazing celebration. This was in 2019, right before the pandemic happened. Yeah, I think that was, um, it was a really important kind of moment for our group. And also it was, we really did celebrate it and we took the time to do that. And I think that's something that you know, I really, really appreciated having the opportunity to do. It kind of helped it kind of come full circle from being an undergraduate who had no idea who A.J. Corey was to like kind of winning this award with his yeah. name. Very, very cool story. You know, Professor, you just mentioned about First Woman. I'm just amazed at how far we've come. And I mean, I almost feel like there's a half woman, half man. And can you just quickly comment on like, yeah, when you go to conferences now, boy, it's, is it 50-50 or no, there's still more work to go in that area? Yeah, like uh, the question of whether or not like the field of organic chemistry kind of represents what our population looks like, right? Which yeah, yeah, a yeah. measure of whether or not it's really like inclusive and everyone has. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like there's still m- more work to be done than that? Or I, yeah. I just was part of engineering week and- to be honest, it did seem like it was half and half. half yeah, that's, that's awesome to hear. I think that we're still, um, we still have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do agree with you that things have changed a lot, especially in the last few years. Uh, um, you know, like maybe even just like 10 years ago, I remember there were very few women among the applicant pool um, applying to study organic chemistry. And so that number has really changed just among the applicants that we have. And so when I've been on admissions, just amazing classes that in in some cases, very representative of the general population, but we still have a long way to go in terms of, um, you know, diversity. And there's, I think, an awareness now, though, I think there, it can come from little things like giving an undergraduate student an opportunity Um, to do research in your lab because it kind of starts there. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, that can make a big difference. Gotcha. Well, Professor, we've gone way over. Thank you. And and it's just been really enlightening and you're the best. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah, Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to ask me all these questions about (laughs) myself that I don't usually get to spend time answering. So I appreciate it. Thanks for the work you're doing to bring our community together and just like, have interesting conversations with people around us.
Thank you again to UCI Organic Chemistry Professor V. Dong for taking us on an amazing journey from a chance escape from Vietnam to Texas to Anaheim and Disneyland to this academic Disneyland called UCI. Professor Dong has a wonderful, youthful exuberance about science and learning. Her openness to exploration is remarkable. It showed up in this interview, and I am sure it shows up in her lab work. Wow. Kudos to Professor Dong and all her lab members. And now, turning the page, coming up next at the top of the hour is Oswaldo Diaz with his Spanish-speaking program about mindfulness. Stay tuned. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zod, 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 everyday anteaters every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. To hear an encore of this show or any of my past shows, simply go to my podcast website at www.bostonmeyer.com. And comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at KUCI.org. I'm your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer, enjoying the heck out of being your voice on the air, and as always, wishing you a pleasant good evening and hoping your trails are always happy. We'll see you next week. And in case you're new to the show, my show theme song is Signifying by blues piano journeyman Fred Kaplan. Enjoy. <laughs>